breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode of Reform This. Always an honor to be with you. If you're searching the podcast network for a patriotic Muslim voice, a Muslim voice that is willing to take on radicalism, take on the deep issues of reform, recognize the issues that need reform, and unapologetically confront them, you found the right place. We wade our way through political correctness, avoiding it and dealing with the true causes of radicalization, which is political Islam. I address the issues of Islamic State allegiance, the issues of political Islam, and the issues of theocracy, all of which, until they're confronted, will never stop the root cause of radicalization and political Islam. Week to week, we do that here. If you've listened before, thank you for coming back. A lot to talk about this week. Some big changes happening in Saudi Arabia. Let's make our way through and see, oh, is the kingdom truly reforming? Then we'll talk about a basketball camp in the East Coast that an NBA Muslim professional athlete, Ennis Cantor, was going to have. And all of a sudden, because of pressure from abroad, from Turkey, was canceled. Then we'll talk about the new profile of Tulsi Gabbard and how regardless of what the Syrian-American lobby is paying her for her apologetics and defense of the Assad regime, it's probably not enough because they could have asked for nothing better. And so much more to talk about. But first, the big news this week came out of Saudi Arabia. They basically had what they felt was important to announce some major changes through a royal decree. The royal decree basically said that the mahram laws, the forbidden laws that basically relate to who a woman can get her rights from, and mahram, or however you want to pronounce it, are those people that she cannot marry, so therefore they're the ones responsible for her. Now, if she's married, then it's her husband. If she's not married, then it would be people she can't marry, such as her father, her brother, her uncle. They're the ones that then she gets her rights from, and she does not have her own rights. Well, the decree this week, and this was actually a long time coming, because when they gave women the right to travel, to I'm sorry, to drive, they had to follow that with the ability to be alone, to work to travel, or all driving really is mean, meaningless. And that did follow. Last year they had a royal decree that passed that women could drive, and now they've passed that she has a right to guardianship, that she can file paperwork to be the guardian of children, of her own children. Welcome, <laughs> yeah, welcome to the 17th, 18th century, obviously to the 20th century on some things. What does this mean? They can now work. They can now apply for guardianship. They can 
drive, and travel with their own documents, either inside or outside the country. I jokingly said on social media this week, I said, we've been talking about caravans coming to Mexico. If this was a reality, you'd imagine caravans of women, especially going to the border at Bahrain, Jordan, Iraq, UAE, where else? Because if they really, you know, these laws might give them some initial taste of rights, but many of them have been prisoners. We've seen high-profile sons and, I'm sorry, high-profile daughters and sisters of royal family that have escaped while traveling and did not want to come back. So it's not that far-fetched to say that the real caravans escaping, seeking real asylum would happen now that they do have travel permission. But I think that would begin to test the legal system because this is my main concern about what I think are pro forma changes in Saudi Arabia. Why do I say pro forma? Well, not to rain on the dreams of reform and the positivity, but, you know, listen, call me a skeptic. Why is the why is the kingdom doing this? They haven't had mass demonstrations. There's There was an Arab awakening slightly threatening them in 2011 with the other countries. They sent a $40,000 or so check to every Saudi citizen, and all of a sudden that quieted down. But there's been no unrest since then, so why why in August 2019 is all of a sudden a royal decree coming? Well, along with the opening of their society to diplomatic relations like they've never seen before, at least for a decade or two since back... You know, for for decades, uh, they now have had significant warming of the relationship back with the United States that has long been an ally. But President Obama, because of his fealty, because of his love for the Iranians, sacrificed a lot of that at the altar of the nuclear deal, as did Valerie Jarrett, who grew up in Tehran, and others that seem to have a, a significant lean in their stride for appeasement towards the Iranians. And that sacrificed a lot of our relationship, and the Trump administration is trying to rekindle a lot of that history that we've had with the Sunni regimes. Now, from a diplomatic perspective, from a realpolitik, as the State Department calls it, it makes sense to do that. But that should not sacrifice our values. That should not sacrifice the fact that we should hold our friends even more feet to the fire about values and human rights abominations rather than give them waivers and other things on things like religious freedom, women's rights, and elsewhere. But, so maybe that's inspiring their actions now. They're finding that they need to meet the alliance that's growing with America, with Israel. An unbelievable opening of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel is happening. Maybe that relationship opening needs to also be followed with some demonstrable deliverables with women's rights. And I think it's a pro forma. Why is it pro forma? You could easily say, well, it's just a PR stunt. But listen, when a kingdom that claims to be, and they have some legitimacy in that claim since the the seat of the center of the Islamic faith is in Mecca, the direction to which we all pray. 
the Hajj, the pilgrimage, one of the primary pillars of our faith that we should all do once in our lifetime is done to their country. Now, they never cease to remind everybody on their television and elsewhere as they introduce themselves, even before they give their middle name, they cite themselves as being the protectors and the uh, holders of the Grand Mosque of Mecca and the seat of Islamic history. So with that, everything they do, they see through the lens of an Islamic state, through the lens of Sharia. This is why their Wahhabi form of Islam has been the primary form of interpretation of Qur'an, the translation of the Qur'an, interpretation of the Qur'an from the Arabic, which is the same Arabic to the comma across the planet, has been an interpretation of Wahhabi, and especially the Maliki Sharia school of thought, and that school of thought, especially seems to have some draconian interpretations, as actually do most of the four Sunni schools of thought are pretty common on many of the abominations to human rights and especially treatment of women. And let's focus on that for this for this discussion. Now, if they're going to all of a sudden have a royal decree that allows women to travel, that allows them to have guardianship of their kids, etc., where is the legal precedent that's been changed in Saudi Arabia? We should be able to turn on the television and see the sermons in the Grand Mosque saying, you know what, we have previously cited these cases, this interpretation of Qur'an and Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet. Well, these Hadith are no longer valid. We say that these are not even authentic anymore, that the interpretation is this. The interpretation that a woman has a half a vote of a man, and as a result... His vote, her rights come from him. Only he can divorce her. She, he protects her. She does not have her own protection. These are interpretations that come from those Sharia schools of thought. So a royal decree might make everybody feel good, but if there's ever question, if there's ever criminality that's brought forth, I mean, look right now, the rape laws that exist. Are there any? All we know is that there are many cases of rape victims that end up being the criminals because they were alone with a man, so therefore they committed the initial act according to this heinous Saudi law that was the crime, and then somehow they, God forbid, deserved what happened. This is the Saudi law. Now, all of that needs to be undergirded if it's going to be reformed with new legal interpretations that come from the clerics, the grand jurists of Mecca, of Jeddah, of Medina, of the legal council, the judges, the clerics, the Islamic leaders of Mecca, of Saudi Arabia, that are informing the law. Because remember, the the grand scheme that happened in Saudi Arabia when the terrorists took control of the mosque in 79, where there was an uprising of radical Islamists at the time, the Wahhabi militants, they said, you know what, 
we will have an arrangement in the kingdom in which you control the judiciary and control the school system, and the royal family, the House of Saud, will control the military and the government. And that's been the arrangement since 79. And now you try to moderate the royal family and they say, well, we can't because they're controlling the population. Over 90% of Twitter activity are fundamentalists, Wahhabis, etc. That's what they tell us. But this is an eventuality that is such a common thing with Arab dictators. They, they create a radical population. They allow only the militancy to spread while they snuff out moderates, while they imprison them and torture them or deport them. And the militants are the ones that are given oxygen because that then legitimizes military authoritarian control. So what happened this week? As this royal decree is passed, we see a system in which now all of a sudden you can't deny there's been some great steps forward. It's a great step forward when this finally becomes implemented that a woman can be the guardian without a husband or with her husband, but she can take the children and travel with them and and not have the authorities demand that there be a man there to account for ownership of her as no bodily autonomy, let alone demanding that she cover and all the other human rights abuses. That's an advance, there's no doubt. But if it's not undergirded with Islamic reform and theological reform when tested in their court system, either the royal family is going to have to interject on every nuance of case that tests what these decrees mean, or there's going to have to be a new body of Islamic thought that can then be spread through the kingdom and globally to say that we were wrong in previous interpretations and the new interpretations are about equality are about autonomy for women's rights, for the ability to work independently without authorization from some other mahram in her family, some other man that provides that right. And what I'm talking about is ishtihad, which is the subject of this podcast, right? Is is critical interpretation of scripture in light of modern day. And if we're going to report about changes in the kingdom, I don't understand why media and and pundits, even the most educated ones, save really the honest ones that have been doing this for a while, like Daniel Pipes, like... Um, you know, many of us Muslim reformers, uh, we're asking the right questions. But the rest, sort of the pundits just say, oh, look, the kingdom's moderating. Yes, thank God, MBS is so awesome. Yes, clap for his moderation. Well, okay, great. You can't deny that this week, if this is implemented, women are better off than they were a week ago. Okay? But that does not mean that the Legal system has been reformed. That does not mean that they're going to all of a sudden be a westernized nation. And they would tell you, well, we don't want to be westernized. We're an Islamic state. Well, I don't think you can just simply fix this without what our mission is at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, which is separation of mosque and state. Unless you start to have a more secularized law in which individuals are equal, if you continue to view their rights through the lens of Islam— rather than through the lens of reason and 
individual rights under God rather than under an Islam, you will continue to empower a legal system that says you're an Islamophobe if you reject the legal interpretations of Islam by the government, by the jurists that are clerics. I just don't see a way to fix that. You may modernize it and make us feel better that they're now driving and working. Yes, that's like the difference between North Korea and China. (laughs) Both are dictators. China has an open economy as far as parts of it, but it's still corrupt, socialistic, and snuffs out individual thought. And yet they're on the world stage competing in their free mark sort of quasi-capitalistic kleptocratic approach to free markets, which doesn't exist in their own countries, but yet is more open than a completely ossified North Korea. But it's neither country, South Korea, which is an open free market system. Not a dictatorship, not socialistic. So are we going to have a bigotry of low expectations in which the new relations with Saudi Arabia demand that we just sort of let them treat women not as fifth-class citizens, but third? (laughs) And I don't think it's improved that much. I would say four minus. Or do we hold them accountable and say, okay, listen, you you know, know, fine, your 2030 plan, we're not going to wait till 2030, which is the plan of MBS. You need to implement this tomorrow. And then on the next day, we want to see new books coming out that begin you know listen they also had a reversal on their position on the brotherhood after 50 years of 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 empowering and funding and and using their ideas to undergird radical and political islam globally in the last year and a half they have completely withdrawn from that imprisoned the princes that were funding them to the billions and stopped it because it was a viral process that was working with their enemies of the royal family but without the legal interpretations to say that Islamism, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood, their ideas, their charter, their constitution, the viralization of their ideas are all wrong. Unless we have a debate about the, the authenticity of their ideas and how they're an anathema to freedom, to liberty, and to a modern interpretation of Islam, simply finding them and saying they're bad and torturing them or assassinating them like they did Khashoggi is not going to win the war of ideas. It's not. There needs to be real reform, needs to be addressed and and uh, debated. So the jury's still out. But again, we're better off than we were last week. And when it gets implemented, we'll even be better. Next, Ennis Cantor. Professional basketball player, Turkish origin, has humbly presented an example of Islam which is pro-American, pro-freedom, has spoken out courageously against Recep Erdogan, the Islamist head of the AKP, with the equivalent of, which is the equivalent of the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey. And now he's been butting heads with the Islamists in America. Well, 
that is not a surprise for any of you who have been following the Islamic Society of North America, the Islamic Circle of North America, all these major Islamist parties are in up to their eyebrows with the Turkish lobby, the Turkish government lobby. They've said nothing about them. They have also, because of Erdogan's openness with Syrian refugees, even the Syrian community in America has often been horrifically silent when it comes to the Islamist radicalization coming from Turkey. Enes Kanter, a Muslim citizen of Turkey, said the Turkish consulate in New York used bully tactics to pressure the Islamic Center of Long Island. This is a, a exclusive story from John Rosamanda with the investigative project uh, uh, that always does fantastic work. And he said that they used bully tactics to pressure the Islamic Center of Long Island into canceling Enes Kanter's basketball clinic for kids. They punished over 300, as Ennis tweeted out, they punished over 300 New York kids who were supposed to have a free basketball camp. This is how the Turkish dictator operates. He was a former New York Nick, is a critic of Turkey's Recep Erdogan. He supports Fatullah Gulen, so the regime is very upset with him. As you know, the regime claims that the Gulenists tried the assassination attempt, the coup, a few years ago. The jury still out as to whether that was a Reichstag fire type fake coup attempt, or was it real? Bottom line, though, is that Erdogan is not happy with Gulen and wants those who support him to pay heavy prices. And it shows that the price extends into the United States. And what I found very unusual about the story is how why would a mosque in the United States do the bidding for supposedly a NATO ally in the United States, but but Turkey is not acting like a NATO ally. They're acting like a two bit dictatorship. They torture journalists, they've imprisoned and and uh, uh, eliminated tens of thousands of their antagonists in Turkey. Their laws of speech protection against the government have become fit for an Arab Islamist dictatorship versus actually a NATO country. And I think that's one of the only reasons Erdogan is still in power. Conter refused to travel to London earlier this year in a game between the Knicks and the Washington Wizards because he feared that he'd be abducted or killed by Turkish agents. The mosque, in response, said the cancellation was due to unforeseen circumstances. Cantor blasted that. He said, you let a Turkish dictator and the Turkish consulate in New York run your mosque, he wrote. That's amazing. Why isn't the media covering this? You have an NBA player. No, they're covering Ilhan Omar's anti-American venom. Where she's traveling over to Ghana 
And you have Speaker Pelosi walking through doors, taking pictures and saying that she's proud to not only send her back, go back to her mother, Africa. No discussion of the human rights happening and devastation in Somalia or elsewhere. No. Cantor is fighting against a theocratic regime in New York City with camps being canceled by outposts of that regime, which are supposedly centers of religious worship in America, but are actually Islamist defense structures. Islamist defense structures, where you have organizations where whose sermons and operations are teaching kids that camps can be canceled if the NBA player has an opinion that's against nothing in America, against a Turkish dictator that he becomes anti-Islam and their kids will be brainwashed. And he wrote, Muslims should understand we have freedom and we do not need to bow to dictators. I will make a free camp for the kids elsewhere. We tell kids to stand up to bullies, but you and your mosque allow Turkish government to bully you. Hats off to Enes Kanter. Mosque representatives said the cancellation followed threats by the Turkish consulate who came to the Islamic Center of Long Island, said the manager for the basketball player, Hank Fatik. The mosque received more than 90 calls from unknown people in Turkey telling it to cancel the event and threatening them. The threats included a ban on mosque members traveling through Turkey, which is a popular destination for many Muslims and is a common flight connection to South Asia where many mosque members have family. Cantor appropriately said, I wish they had reported this to the FBI, to the police. Instead, they just punished American kids. It shows how strong Erdogan is. He can bully Americans, and he knows the response he's going to get. This is the second camp Cantor had canceled. He had one in Dallas that was canceled due to Erdogan's pressure also. It's bizarre, and he keeps apologizing to the kids. I don't blame him. It's not the kids' fault, but certainly when people say, who's running the Muslim community in America? It's the Ilhan Omars. It's the Erdogans of the world. It's the red-green axis, the axis between the socialists of the world, the Maduros, and the Islamists, of Khomeinists of Iran, of Erdogan, of Turkey, of Qatar. That's who's running the Islamic community in America. It's especially heinous. And we knew this was true. When Erdogan got reelected on the election night party that he had, you had he had traveled, flown in the leaders of the major Islamic organizations in America to help him celebrate in Istanbul. That's the relationship. This September, in a month, he's going to be speaking at the UN General Assembly. A major fundraiser for American Islamic organizations is going to be happening with a poster of Erdogan that looks like something out of some bizarre horror flick. And yet it shows a picture of Erdogan talking about uniting the Ummah, which is the Muslim community. And that is... The poster that's happening for, I think, September 23rd or something like that this year in 2019. So this thug of a dictator is now raising money for Islamist organizations that now are proud to join him. Now, he put the name of some major uh, Islamists that are known, like Dalia Mujahid, who's well-known in the, uh, I think it's Georgetown Center, uh, Bridges Initiative and others. 
You saw Omar Soleiman, who opened the prayer for the U.S. Congress, proudly for, for Speaker Pelosi, invited by, I think it's Eddie Bernie Johnson from Texas, since he's from Dallas or Houston. I'm not sure which town in Texas. But bottom line is, is Omar Soleiman, then when confronted, just tweets out, my name was not authorized to be on there. Stop tweeting me about it. He didn't criticize Erdogan. He didn't say he detests every, anything with that regime. No, he just said, I have nothing to do with it. Boom, zip, stop asking me. And I won't take media calls. If that's not a spineless coward of an American Islamic leader, I don't know what is. Same thing with Dalia Mujahid. Our names were placed on there without our authorization. So they withdrew from it, even though they probably participated in some kind of meeting. Why would their... My name didn't appear accidentally on an Erdogan poster. Theirs does, because that's the Islamist circles. That's the network of politicization that's going on. As John talks about, Imut Akar, the consul general of Turkey's Chicago consuls, repeatedly trolled Cantor on Twitter. He taunted him last week, mocking a video in which Gulen is shown asking for a cup of tea and then passes it to Cantor. Cantor has a, as John concludes, he has a significant public profile as an NBA player that makes him a threat that the Erdogan regime seems determined to shut down. So there's a lot to learn here when you say about reform in our community. It's not just there's a cowardice that comes from some of the mid-level Muslim leadership. The higher-level Muslim leadership are not only cowards, they are working with the enemies of our country, truly working with the Islamists, of Turkey, of Qatar, of Iran, hand in hand with those who not only do not share a vision of American secularism and separation of mosque and state, but actually believe in theocracy, but actually believe that America's lens through the world is one of a force of evil rather than a force of good, and to them a force of good is through Islamist governments against the West, not with the West. And yet when called push comes to shove, some of them will just sort of slink away, as we saw with Omar Soleiman. And others will actually defend our enemies. Google Enes Kanter's debate with the Turkish government and see which American Muslim leaders stood in his defense. And say what you will about the Gulenists. They have their problems. I'm not a fan of some of their... Uh, secretiveness, and I don't even know, many of us don't know what the Kismet movement's all about. It's so uh, hidden in what its uh, real agenda is. The bottom line is is uh, they are not part of the Islamist movements. The bottom line is is that they are a non-militant movement that seeks to be at home in governments, in nation states like America, like the West, and be religiously free to practice and not interfere in other people's faith. So at this point, it does not appear at all that not only are they not Islamists, but their ideas seem to reject that. And they're taking on some of the worst Islamists in the world, like Erdogan. 
we'll continue to follow this story. I think that is so relevant. Last, we had Tulsi Gabbard this week give an interview on MSNBC. I think that exposes so much of what she is. Let's take a listen to that. Here's Tulsi Gabbard with an MSNBC anchor. On that day, Congresswoman, do you not believe that the same could be said for your meeting with Bashar al-Assad? I don't know how you could equate that. that We're talking would, that about a president that with, is directly... That you would be meeting with the leader of Syria who could feasibly be responsible for the killings of over half a million people who ordered the chemical attacks on children in his own country? I will never apologize for doing all that I can to prevent more of my brothers and sisters in uniform from being sent into harm's way to fight another regime change war, the likes of which we have seen in Iraq and Libya and Syria that have taken so many of our service members' lives, that has taken Ask so many of our taxpayer dollars out of the pockets of people in this country, people she who are like suffering, this. people in places like Detroit, like Flint, Michigan, communities across this country, what to speak of the suffering that's been caused. So if that means meeting with a dictator, meeting with an adversary in order to accomplish that mission of keeping the American people safe, making sure our troops are not continuing to be sent on these wasteful wars, putting their lives at risk and making sure we've got the resources for the American people. I'll do what is necessary. And frankly, that's the kind of commander in chief we need that truly has the courage, just as we've seen in our country's past, how, you know, President Kennedy met with Khrushchev how Khrushchev. Roosevelt not only met with Stalin, a murderous dictator so killed millions of people. Then Excuse me, sorry, let me finish. Who met not only with Stalin, who killed millions of people, but actually allied with him. Why? Because it was in the best interest of our country and the American people to World bring War about II. an end to that war. So no, if it means meeting with dictators, if it means working so with people who with do people things like that we Stalin find or abhorrent. meeting with Bashar al-Assad, but not necessarily meeting with the leader of, leader of Saudi Arabia or supporting or, or, having, not, me, or, or having a relationship sure, with them. Sure. You're, you're, you're uh, making you're mixing two different things up. I'm talking about having a meeting. I, I don't think for, I'm mixing for, two different things up. I'm just trying to get clarity on it because there seems sure. to be some inconsistencies in your views of there, it. There's no inconsistency whatsoever. Having a meeting for the pursuit of our national security and peace is one thing. I would meet with the leader of Saudi Arabia, with leaders of Iran, with leaders of North Korea in that pursuit of national security, keeping the American peace? people safe. The difference between that and what she Donald went Trump to give has photo ops to Assad to do is he has cozied up, allied with and supported Saudi Arabia in their support of al-Qaeda and in support of this genocidal war in Yemen that continues to this day. Notice, illegal no criticism war that of Iran. not authorized, that's killed thousands of innocent Yemeni people, and that's caused millions more to suffer. So, so I hear so you're you, talking I, about two very different language of genocide on Yemen. These are issues, but no language of genocide on Syria. So I, I want to go, go with this for a moment. So when sitting down with someone like Bashar al-Assad uh, in Syria, do you confront him directly and say, Do you order chemical attacks on your own people? Why do you cause the killings of over half a million people in your country? Look, you know, I, I want to break this down to what we're talking about. I want to break this down to what we're talking about here today, because you're talking about a meeting that took place 
what, three years ago? Oh, and every time you're I come back, no, every time well, I come back here on MSNBC, so, no, but you guys talk in, to me about these issues. It sounds like these are in, talking points that Kamala Harris and her campaign are feeding you. Talking points. Because she's refusing Answer to address the, question. the questions that were posed to her. She asked about your foreign policy issues and where you stand. If you're leading with foreign policy and you're running for the president of the United States, a meeting with Bashar al-Assad, which I'm sure you understand, is a very controversial meeting to take. Hence the reason why when you come on MSNBC, it is important for us to talk to you about that. And of course, every anchor has a different perspective and different questions to ask of you. Every so single time for three me, years. This is where the propaganda comes in, because I've, I've talked about this a lot for the last three years. And I've talked about how as a soldier, I served in a field medical unit in Iraq. You know, listen, I've had enough of listening to Tulsi, but I wanted to make sure you heard all of that because she's running for president. She's running for commander in chief. She continued to invoke her combat experience, invoke the bottom line is she could meet with whoever she wanted because she wants to bring peace and it takes courage not to go to war. And yet she was being asked simply doesn't mean that we're going to send troops there. This concept that somehow if you validate the fact that there is war crimes happening and that happened in Syria in this eight-year conflict since 2011, the civil war in which over half a million people on MSNBC showed graphic while she was talking of the 600,000 killed of the 10 million displaced. Gabbard made not one recognition. Her, her, her trolls on social media continue to say, well, she said he was, he was a dictator. And then she talked about Stalin and others. Well, that's not enough. She didn't say he was a dictator. She sort of obliquely said it. I mean, if Syria, I don't care how much the Syrian lobby in America is paying her campaign, it's not enough. She is an unbelievable representative of Assad's interests and Iran's interests. She talks about Yemen and calls it a genocidal campaign using using Iran's talking points, talk about talking points, using Iran's talking points, ignoring the fact that the Houthis have a huge role, if not a primary predominant role, of the crimes happening in Yemen. This is not to say that the Saudis' hands are not clean. They are also engaging in a significant, likely war crimes in Yemen. And I've been in support of the Senate's efforts to try to rein that in. But that does not mean that it should not be blatantly obvious to anyone with three brain cells working that Tulsi Gabbard's constant positions are ones that are basically advocating for. She's not just a blind spot. She's advocating for the Assad Ba'athist regime. She's advocating for the Khomeinists and for Russian interests. There's no doubt that that triangle is where she starts to look at the lens. She's not fit as Josh Rogan talked about in the in the post this week and Daniel Pipes reiterated she is not fit for the presidency. I don't know what happened uh, when she served. I think it's a much bigger problem with her, uh, but it has nothing to do with her service. Many of us have served. That doesn't mean that we have to agree with everyone that served in, the, in our military. All I know is that the lens through which she looks at Syria is un-American, as many have said. No American can look at the war crimes, the chemical weapons used to to slaughter women and children in Damascus and Aleppo and elsewhere, and then simply say that Trump administration is working with Al-Qaeda. That's another f- just horrific lie. 
horrific lie. The data she's using, there's no doubt that a lot of the aid that the Obama administration gave, which was minimal to start with, but whatever they did give often did end up in radical Islamist hands. But to say that continued through with the Trump administration is completely asinine, if not idiotically ignorant. And yet that's what she was saying. This is exactly what's coming from Syrian media today, is that the Trump administration is working with al-Qaeda and against the Assad regime and against the Syrian people. This is the talking points on Arab Syrian state-sponsored media. And that's what's coming from Tulsi Gabbard's mouth. And she couldn't get herself in any of that five-minute interview. She used the word dictator, but never once talked about the crimes committed by the regime. She kept saying it was a meeting from three. That meeting she went to three years ago, ladies and gentlemen, that meeting she went to was paid by Assad lobby organizations. She took photo ops with the president of Syria, who is a war criminal. She took photo ops with him as if she was visiting the United Kingdom. She went past war-savaged areas with the regime as if they were helping the children and provided for them propagandistic-type footage that is fit for other Baathists herself. If she was a Baathist, she would have done the same type of footage. That is not what an American soldier would do. I don't care how many years she served. Something went wrong with her when she decided to 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 position these policies. And as was said in that interview, she's leading with foreign policy. This isn't even, oh, by the way, let's find what position she has. And, and this is what she leads with. And every time she has an opportunity to speak in the debate, she jumps to foreign policy and getting us out of war as well. Okay. No war in Syria. Nobody's saying we should send troops at all, but at least present America as a moral force for good that we stand against evil, verbally even. You want to meet with dictators? Fine, you can meet with them. Nobody's saying that that is by itself an incorrect position. Though meeting with Assad is beyond controversial, just uh, and we can get to that if you want, but, it, but bottom line is, okay, then what? At some point, Assad's working with the Khomeinis who are funding Hezbollah, who are threatening Israel, our allies. What is your position on the firewalls that you establish in which you prevent the metastases, the spread of, of terror, of sponsorship, of radicalism by these regimes to our allies? We're pulling out of Afghanistan? Fine. I agree. Take our troops out. It's been a failure. Yes, we decimated Al-Qaeda when they were there, Taliban for a little bit, and now they've resurged. It's hopeless to try to say that American troops with a presence in Afghanistan can somehow democratize and help progress Afghanistan, and it's sad. It's a humanitarian disaster, but we need to leave. I agree. 18 years is enough to prove that we failed there to provide any type of nation-building, if you will. As much as I've grown like everybody else to hate that term, it didn't work. But we will say that we will come back at, at any moment in which that godforsaken place is used as a platform to attack us, our citizens, or our allies, especially Israel. And we say the same thing about Syria. We'll go back. 
if ever ISIS recurs or the Assad regime themselves decide to attack our allies and threaten as Hezbollah now is building areas to launch missiles on the Israeli border, as they constantly do through funding of Iran and support of Assad. So, this is an important point, and it is not, I think, a, a stretch on a program that talks about reform. When you say, what is the constant fuel for radicalization? Dictators that, that use chemical weapons and then are bolstered by people running for president in America as somehow having some righteousness, and we won't even use verbiage against them, that radicalizes the opposition against Assad. And it empowers the militancy of governments like Assad's from both sides. So, thanks for listening. As always, we've talked about Saudi Arabia's reforms or pro forma. We've talked about basketball camps and the, the, the long reach of the Turkish regime. And we've talked about presidential candidates and the influence of the Assad Ba'athist lobby in America and how it colors what they say on television and their positions, like Gabbard's horrific un-American positions. This is Zudi Jasser. It's always great to be with you. I will be with you next week on Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.